Coming up on Stu Does America, in case you think I had forgotten about Andrew Cuomo's New York genocide, no, no, I have not. Carol Markowitz from the New York Post joins us to continue our factual assault. The Trump administration has announced what looks like a big deal in Israel. We'll get into that with Ariel Davidson. You can get every incredible episode of this show on YouTube. Just search for my name, Stu, and I'll be the first one there. Please subscribe. Click that little bell to get your updates and help us defeat the evil big tech algorithm robots by clicking like right now before you forget or I say something that pisses you off. And we've just hit new highs in listenership on our podcast again this past week. Thank you so much for that. It really helps if you subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. We'd like to read your five-star reviews reviews at the end of the show. And, of course, for the full access pass, subscribe to blazetv.com slash stew. Make sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Okay, we have more proof that our media is poison to our civilization. But other than that, they seem really nice. Let's do the media's racial awakening. Stu does America. If you've been watching this show for the past you know, few weeks, you know I've been really interested in the changing of fundamental concepts that we all used to agree on. Perhaps first and foremost, the definition of the word racism and how to overcome what's happening. It used to be the MLK construct, you know, judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Now it's morphed into a blanket group of accusations against white people generally. There's a system and white people have supposedly built it with or without their knowledge and that system benefits white people and therefore they are racists. Even if you grew up in the most trailery of trailer parks before being orphaned into the dungeon of a meth lab, congratulations, you have white privilege. It's like asymptomatic COVID. It's a disease you never knew you had. And I'm sorry to tell you, there is no cure. But how did this get mainstreamed? How did everyone seemingly overnight start talking about microaggressions and white privilege? Of course, the basis of this thing came from left-wing academics. But how did it cross over? Zach Goldberg at Tablet Magazine went looking for those answers and found some amazing stuff. We'll tweet a link to his uh, full story from at Stu Does America. But I want to go through some of it tonight because it answers some big questions that everyone has been asking, black or white. We'll get into the reasons why in a second. But it's interesting to note that the American people are definitely feeling like they are seeing more racism these days, particularly if they are on the left. As Goldberg points out, in 2011, just 35 percent of white liberals thought racism in the United States was a big problem, according to national polling. By 2015, this figure had ballooned to 61 percent and further still to 77 percent in 2017. So this isn't some reaction to Donald Trump. The the left might suggest that, but this was happening before Trump even announced his run. Now, you might say, well, maybe racism is just increasing and they're right. Well, are they? Because, you know, CNN has been conducting a poll for a while and they asked this question. Do you know someone you consider racist? Between 2006 and 2015, the percentage of black Democrats that knew somebody racist actually fell by 5.5 percent. And Hispanic Democrats percentage fell even further, 7.3 percent. But among white Democrats, they saw a 23 percent increase on that question. Why are blacks and Hispanics noticing less racism and white people are noticing more? 
And regardless of why it's happening, these white Democrats are sort of wrong by definition, aren't they? If blacks and Hispanics are seeing things get better, white people can't actually be correct in seeing more racism. What is giving them this impression? The answer is that the word racism is being redefined in front of our eyes. Let's take a look at a phrase, quote, blacks should work their way up without special favors. In and of itself, it's not a racist phrase, right? I mean, if, you know, if someone walked up to you in line at yogurt land and just said, hey, blacks should work their way up without special favors. OK, you probably would assume that they had some racial issues. But if you're answering a poll question, it's not racist to say, yes, blacks shouldn't get special favors. They should get equal treatment. Everybody gets the same rules, right? We all used to sort of agree on that, including the overwhelming majority of white liberals. In 2010, only 24% disagreed that there should be any special favors for black people. In 2012, it was 30%, then 36% in 2014, then 52% in 2016. Remember, it used to just be judge someone on the content of their character or you were a racist. Now it's turned into we must give away special favors or you're a racist. This is what's happening. More things are considered racist than used to be normal human behavior. And it's not just a number of things. It's innocuous things, even positive things that have now turned into racist things. To note how foundational these attacks are on our civilization, the article notes a 2016 New York Times story about microaggressions. Quote, as an example of a microaggression, the article cites the following comment. Everyone can succeed in this society if they work hard enough. This is supposedly racist because it emphasizes individual agency and implies that race plays a minor role in life's outcomes. But that's the American dream you're talking about. If you work hard, anyone can make it. Literally, they are calling the American dream a microaggression. A 2016 research paper in a psycho, uh, a Psychological Inquiry notes that our, uh, the path on our uh, country is on, and it's pretty incredible. These conceptual changes followed a consistent trend. Concepts that refer to the negative aspects of the human experience and behavior have expanded their meanings so that they can now encompass a much broader range of phenomena than before. Hmm. The concepts of abuse, bullying, trauma, mental disorder, addiction, and prejudice are examined to illustrate these historical changes. In each case, the concept's boundary has stretched and its meaning has dilated. The author calls this concept creep and notes that while it is, quote, often well-motivated, concept creep runs the risk of pathologizing everyday experience and encouraging a sense of virtuous but impotent victimhood, virtuous but impotent victimhood. That could basically be our national motto at this point. So where are people getting this idea? It's not like they're searching these academic journals and latching onto these bizarre concepts. No, no. They're getting it from the media. I want to show you a tiny bit of the evidence, but this is how Tablet Magazine summarizes it. Quote, what the evidence suggests is that leading publications have not only vastly expanded the definition of racism and actively promoted a more racialized view of American society, but they have done so in part by normalizing and popularizing the notion of white people's collective guilt. I want to show you some graphs because, you know, 
what show do you think this is? I mean, it's the only thing I ever want to do, show you graphs. God bless you guys listening on the audio podcast who have to deal with all my frequent trips to Graphapalooza. Conserva nerds, unite. Again, we'll tweet out the whole article so you can see them for yourselves, at Stu Does America. But these charts look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And it looks at how often they used racialized language in their coverage. This first batch shows systemic, structural, and institutional racism, along with racial inequality and disparity. What it shows is basically no use of any of those terms from 1970 all the way to between 2010 and 2014. And then you have a hockey stick-like increase. These terms were suddenly, overnight, used about 10 times as often in the Times and the Post. The same goes for terms like white privilege, whiteness and racial hierarchy and white supremacy. I mean, it's like, look at this. It's not like white supremacy hasn't been in the news between 1970 and 2014. You can barely see a blip on the chart for things like the Oklahoma City bombing or the L.A. riots. And it would be almost impossible to argue that white supremacy has always been at, you know, we're talking about how it's always been defined, not this new game they're playing. White supremacy has not increased in that time. Yet every graph shows the same thing. The term white privilege basically went from nothing for 40 years to a sudden 1,200% increase between 2013 and 2019 in the New York Times and a 1,500% increase in the Washington Post. The research also shows that it was mainly the New York Times and the Washington Post that moved first and started inserting this newspeak. And then papers like the Wall Street Journal just followed suit. This is a totally different way of looking at the country. It's seeing everything through a racial prism and then attempting to retroactively explain all of human existence through skin color. They have changed the definition of racism and then adopted what we used to call racist and instead are calling it, calling it virtuous. What is happening? This is what would make the New York Times comfortable running a promo like this. This is Sarah Koenig, host of The Serial Podcast. I wanna tell you about our new show, Nice White Parents. It's reported by Hannah Jaffe-Walt, who's made some of the best, most thought-provoking, most emotional radio stories I've ever heard. Back in 2015, Hannah wanted to find out what would happen inside this one public school in her neighborhood during a sudden influx of white students into a school that had barely had any white students before. And then, not satisfied that she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s and then forward again up to the present day. And eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to the unspoken force that kept getting in the way of making the school better. White parents. I've been waiting so long to tell people about this show and now i can finally say it go listen to nice white parents nice white parents is made by serial productions a new york times company you can find it wherever you get your podcasts i know i'm going to subscribe right now you know who's to blame for all the problems in my town white people guys that's that's just racism that's just clean and pure racism just flip the colors a couple of the names and you tell me if it feels racist This is Ava Braun, host of the Stormfront podcast. I want to tell you about our new show, Nice Black Parents. It's reported by Richard Spencer, who's made some of the best, most thought-provoking, most emotional radio stories I've ever heard. Back in 2015, Richard wanted to find out what would happen inside this one public school in his neighborhood during a sudden influx of black students into a school that had barely had any black students before. And then, not satisfied that he fully understood what he was seeing, 
He went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then forward again, up to the present day. And eventually, Richard realized he could put a name to the unspoken force that kept getting in the way of making the school better. Black Parents. I've been waiting so long to tell people about this show, and now I can finally say it. Go listen to Nice Black Parents. Nice Black Parents is made by Stormfront Productions, a Turner Diaries company. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or White Hoods. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but we didn't need to change basically anything they said in the actual promo outside of the color. This is a full frontal assault on the vision of Martin Luther King. The media and the left are trying to change the definition of racism, and they are changing the virtuous position to one that encourages discrimination, encourages discrimination. That's virtuous now. Don't believe me? Here's one of the main guys responsible for this new version of racism, Ibram Kendi, laying it all out in explicit detail. Quote, if discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is to is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. The left has embraced this. They have embraced discrimination openly. Wokeism is racism openly. None of this means the left and the media will stop calling conservatives racists in their DNA. But they no longer mean that they want equality. They want something else. They want punishment, retribution, discrimination. They don't want you to be judged by the content of your character. They want you to be judged by the color of your skin. That's not MLK's vision. That's the KKK's vision, except with a different color. If you're trying to sell your home, you need a real estate agent who you can trust. I mean, if you're just going to type something, oh, real estate agent I can trust, guess what's going to come up? Realestateagentsitrust.com. Realestateagentsitrust.com is Glenn's company, which means, you know, he built it with the idea of you in mind, basically. Uh, he wants you to be able to find somebody that you can actually trust when you're in the middle of the biggest financial transaction you'll ever have in your entire life. When you choose your agent through Real Estate Agents I Trust, you can be assured that you've partnered with a team of people with your best interests at heart. The name says it all, realestateagentsitrust.com. Learn more at realestateagentsitrust.com. If you're moving across the country, this is a great site to use because, you know, you go into a new town, you don't know anybody. Don't just take a name off of a flyer or a bench. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com. Find someone who's already been sorted out, who's already been screened. You can do this when you're buying. You can do it when you're selling. Whenever you're going through a real estate uh, transaction, this is the way to do it. Realestateagentsitrust.com. My next guest is a senior policy analyst for the Jewish Institute of National Security of America. Happy to welcome Ariel Davidson to the program. Ariel, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. This is a wild day. I, I feel like I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about nine million other issues, and then seemingly out of nowhere is a massive announcement from the Middle East. Uh, where did this come from, and what does it mean? So this is the first time in 25 years that Israel will have normalized relations with another Arab country. 
Uh, so, you know, 1979, it was Egypt, 1994, it's Jordan, and now in 2020, it'll be with the UAE. Um, this is a huge policy milestone for the Trump administration, uh, and I think it really underscores the notion that Trump's maneuvers, or at least his outlook on the Middle East, have definitely been a net positive for his administration. Uh, and it also shows that a lot of the uh, orthodoxy that the Obama era or the Obama policy gurus had been practicing were just blatantly incorrect. Uh, and so I think that, <laughs> I think it shows that there were a lot of problematic uh, posturing taking place in the Obama administration. And it's it's nice to see that um, the Trump administration is is doing things, I, I would argue, correctly. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the Obama administration plan, in a way, was to make Iran more stronger, essentially, so that they would be able to create some sort of tension that would lead to peace. This definitely was the alternate way to go. Uh, and it seems like there is a massive difference between what Trump is trying to do and what Obama was trying to do. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing now is a total upending of the narrative. There were a few sort of I would say, myths that were sold to the American public under the Obama administration, one of them being what you touched upon, which is the idea that we need to rebalance the Middle East, that we need to give power back to Iran in order for there to be any sort of long-term peacemaking or peacekeeping in the Middle East. Uh, and this was just obviously, you know, notionally incorrect. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we were sold is the only way to do this was to appease the Iranian regime. And so that's what essentially the Iran deal was born out of, was this idea that we only have two options. We either have war or appeasement. And so those, you have to choose your poison. And so now I think what the Trump administration has shown us is that there actually is a third path. You actually can strong arm, you can sanction the Iranian regime. And in the meantime, you can actually help to forge partnerships with other countries in the region. And I think, you know, it, it really goes to show the fact that when Netanyahu was speaking today about this historic partnership, he was saying, you know, I tip my hat to the Trump administration. The Trump administration played an instrumental role in putting together this normalization. We're going to start to see embassies uh, within the two countries. We're going to start to see flights take place between Abu Dhabi and uh, Tel Aviv. And we're also going to start to see a um, normalization of economic relationships, right? So this is the time now where we're going to start to see more partnerships in the energy sector, and water. Um, these are already things that Israel has going on with Jordan, particularly with energy and water. But it will be nice to see Israel normalize relations with another Arab country in the region, further confirming that, again, the myths we were sold about the Iran deal were just patently incorrect. And the fact that this is what Biden actually plans to run on is Obama 2.0 is another, <laughs> is another uh, example in which we should say, wait a minute, if this is what Biden, if Biden's policy is to go back to the Obama era, that's precisely what didn't work. Yeah, there was a moment today that I almost felt bad for Ben Rhodes, and then I stopped myself, and it didn't happen. Uh, this is the, a big part of what's going on as far as foreign affairs for this election. I mean, we're told that Biden is the guy. He's in, this is his expertise. If he's good at anything, it's foreign affairs, and yet, I mean, this Iran deal looks worse and worse by the second. Are the American people engaged enough to know about it, though? You know, I think my hope, at least, is that the American people will start to see time and time again, how, again, the orthodoxy within the foreign policy community has just been repeatedly wrong. So look back on moving the embassy to Jerusalem. We were told that that was going to start World War III with, it, with regards to the Arab-Israeli conflict. That was not true. We were told the killing of Soleimani was also going to start World mm -hmm. War III. 
that too was not true. We were told that applying sovereignty to the Golan was also going to cause World War III. That also was not true. There are so many times in the Trump administration or during Trump's tenure where the foreign policy community has disengaged in, I would say, this faux outrage, and then we're all sort of subjected to it, and we're all sitting on the edge of our seats, and that all this doom and gloom that they predicted just doesn't come to fruition. And, you know, I, I do think, again, it's sort of a stinging rebuke of the Obama era in a lot of ways, because a lot of the axioms that were um, the basis upon which he made his decisions were just incorrect. And so I really, what I hope at least, is that it forces those within the policy community to say, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should rethink our approach here a bit. And that goes as well for those during the Biden campaign. I hope there's some soul searching that takes place after this type of deal goes through. You, uh, you point out that all those things aren't true. I noticed a little bit of a pattern there. It seemed like all of their initiatives, there was no truth in them, which is an interesting thing. I, to, can you go a step further, though? Can you say not only were what the, the Biden-Obama approach, you know, those things that they said were not true, but things like moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem, was that a, 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 something that actually was a catalyst for this to actually happen? You know, I think it showed that Trump was not going to be held hostage to the demands of terrorists or those who showed that they were not willing to come to the negotiating table, right? And so already we're seeing the Palestinian Authority is starting to cold or cool its relations with the UAE. And it goes to show again that there's an intransigence on the the side of Palestinian leadership that isn't going away. And I think the Obama administration really struggled to acknowledge this. They wanted to sort of Say, well, both sides are at fault here. And I think at the end of the day, we're starting to see that, you know, the rest of the Middle East is ready to move on. Um, another axiom we were sold was that there could never be long-term peace in the Middle East unless we solved the Arab-Israeli conflict. And what we're seeing now is that, you know, actually we can form, uh, you know, we can help to foster relationships between Israel and other nations, and it doesn't need to be precipitated upon addressing the Palestinian issue. Uh, and so I think it, it goes to the heart again of this idea that, um, you know, Israel is, is, the, is the center of all conflict in the Middle East. And we're just seeing that that's not the case at all. Mm. Um, you, you think you see with the Trump administration, you have basically anyone in the Trump administration is completely hated by everyone in the media and on the left and completely loved by everyone on the right. And, you know, it's a bizarre thing. It's a partisan thing. One guy who gets a pretty rough deal from both sides, I think, though, is Jared Kushner, who has, you know, been giving lots of responsibility. He's mocked all the time for these things. He's given the hardest time from the media on the left. He's given the hardest time from even the Trump fans on the right. And yet here we are. I mean, we've seen a lot of things he's handled turn out pretty well. And this is might be, you know, at least he had pretty a decent amount of contribution to this particular uh, story. At least that's the way the reporting is going. Did he get is he getting a raw deal? I think he, he should be owed a lot of credit for this. And I think that, um, you know, there are also talks that other Gulf states are going to join. Uh, there's potential that Bahrain might also start to normalize uh, relations with Israel, which would be fantastic. Uh, so if that starts to have a domino effect, but the good kind of domino effect, not the Henry Kissinger domino effect, um, if, this, if this ends up being something that translates to other Arab states seeking normalization with Israel, I think we could actually see, you know, a very transformative impact on the Middle East and not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. Even, you know, after the Trump years, even past if he's reelected or not reelected. And so I think, you know, I do tip my hat to Jared Kushner because I do believe that he deserves a lot of credit for what's taking place right now. 
we've seen over the uh, over the years, Netanyahu has hinted to essentially the fact that he has a better relationship with some of these Arab states than is really known. Uh, and the idea is maybe this is sort of a sign of something that had been bubbling under for a long time coming to the forefront and becoming public. Is this the sort of thing that can create a snowball where these other states that have already kind of have a, a decent relationship with Israel are going to be willing to take a step and say, yes, this is real. This is official. I think that's right. I think there's a normalizing of normalization, right? So once one person takes the plunge or once one party takes the plunge, we might also see other parties do the same. And I think this is also you know, due to blowback from the Iran deal, because once the Iran deal went into effect, sanctions were lifted and the Iranian economy in 2016 grew by about 10%. So it really did empower the mullahs in a variety of ways. And the response we started to see is this collecting of countries that looked at Iran as a foe and started to coalesce around Israel. And so it actually, in some ways, the Iran deal sort of catalyzed or pushed other countries to say, wait a minute, you know, do we really need to engage in sort of these, um, you know, obstructionist tactics with Israel? Maybe we can work something out. Um, and I do think that part of that push was a result of the Iran deal and Iran becoming emboldened, and other you know, parties in the Middle East saying, wait a minute, this is not good. Um, and it, it's something that I would say is sort of maybe a silver lining of the Iran deal, however you want to phrase it, because um, it was an objectively terrible deal. But we're starting to see a realignment in the Middle East, you know, partially as a result of it. Uh, Ariel, I, you know, it's 2020. Um, I would like to say uh, I'd like to cover good news, but that's just not something we do on the show right now. So tell me, okay. how does this get screwed up? Because it has to get screwed up. It's 2020. I mean, does this thing blow up before it even goes into effect? If Biden gets elected, does does he blow it up? How does this end in disaster? Oh, that's a, I've played this scenario out. I think my biggest concern um, would be that there's a tremendous amount of intransigence within the foreign policy community, particularly on the left. And there's a tremendous amount of unwillingness to tip their hat to Trump when he does something correctly or when his team does something correctly, whether it be Pompeo or someone on, um, within his national security team. So my concern is that if there is a Biden presidency, his administration will not learn from the successes of the Trump administration. So, you know, there always is the phrase, learn from your mistakes. I also think you can learn from the success of others. And there's so much anti-Trump sentiment on the left that there's just this real unwillingness to call balls and strikes and unwillingness to say, look, you know, that was a win. A win is a win is a win. And what can we take away from this situation? I will say, though, that Biden's response, um, you know, was lukewarmly congratulatory. But I still fear that his foreign policy team is going to be very much, you know, rehashing the same old, tired, bad lines of the Obama administration, Ben Rhodes era. And so my biggest fear would be that they're just not going to learn from the successes of the Trump administration when it comes to the Middle East. Well, I'm glad we got in at least a couple of negative mentions on Ben Rhodes. That means the interview is complete. Uh, Ariel Davidson, where can people find you? What's the best place for people to find yourself? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at political L, so just the word political and then E-L-L-E. Uh, and I also am at Jinsa, and we're doing lots of good work over there, so you should definitely check us out. Definitely. Uh, Ariel Davison, Senior Policy Analyst for the Jewish Institute of National Security of America, JINSA. Thanks so much for coming on the program. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, too. This is great. All right. Back in a second.
Alexandria, victim today. As you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is defined by many uh, by her socialism, by her liberalism, by her annoying voice and constant wine drinking. But that's not how we define her here on the program. She's constantly, always, in every single circumstance, a victim. And that might be the most important way to understand her. Here uh, today, she had a, uh, an issue with uh, Donald Trump. Trump uh, went on the, uh, went on, uh, on the TV and he said uh, that AOC was not a smart person and was a poor student during her time at Boston University. This is the strain of thought, by the way, Boston University needs to just adopt. She barely made it through. I don't know how this happened. Like, basically, she scared. I think she hacked in like Ferris Bueller did and changed the grades. We don't know what happened because the, Boston University has been forever tainted by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. No one can understand how anyone could get through uh, the entire university without, I mean, with that, it, it, it doesn't seem to work. Anyway, so the issue here, I think, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez feels victimized by Donald Trump because Donald Trump has called out her grades. She has now responded and said she wants uh, Donald Trump to release um, his college transcript uh, to see who was a better student and the loser has to fund the post office. Now, my understanding was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was very poor and a person of the people. I'm not exactly sure how she would do that. Um, I also don't know if she really cares. I mean, here's the thing. She's trying to get herself in the news. This is what she does. But no one would care about Donald Trump's uh, college transcripts because Donald Trump is like 80 years old, like maybe 90 years. I don't know. He's, old, he's, old, he's an old dude. He's got a lot of energy, a hell of a lot more than Joe Biden. But he's in his 70s. Uh, college is a long time in the past. None of this matters. You're like four minutes out of college trying to work your way through as a congressperson. I mean, I just, I, honestly, it's not even to say, well, I can't believe you didn't actually have good grades in college. It's just to try to understand Boston University. We're trying to help here. Wouldn't it be great if Boston University could just say, look, you saw she got all D minuses. And we're pretty sure she hacked into the computer systems. At least you'd save an, a, a Northeastern institution. Because right now, I can't imagine any kids are sending their kids uh, to, to, or any parents are sending their kids to Boston University at this point. Um, so there you go. That is how Alexandria is a victim today. Hey, hey, what do you say? How is Alexandria a victim today? Got to give you this too. Uh, Dallas, uh, FC Dallas is a uh, soccer team. Apparently, soccer is a sport, and it's played with your feet. I'm not, not sure much about it, but they did have 3,000 people in a stadium to watch a game, the first Major League stadium to have uh, fans back in. I guess Major League Soccer's uh, doing this now. I didn't really have 3,000 fans total, but FC Dallas, it's a kind of a cool stadium. It's in Frisco, Texas, uh, and uh, they had 3,000 people there. They had a national anthem. Guess what happened? The knees were taken in solidarity with whatever thing we're protesting today, even though most of the people probably had no idea. The problem is uh, it's Dallas. So what did they do? They booed. Now, <laughs> I, I can't blame them. You know, it's frustrating. I don't want this brought into sports and no one else does either. Uh, so there you go. I don't know if it's going to continue. Uh, I think every other place, though, the NBA, the NHL, Major League uh, Soccer, uh, NFL, I think all of them are just hoping no fans are let in so they don't have to deal with this controversy constantly. Back in a second.
Happy to welcome back to the program, columnist for the New York Post. It's Carol Markowitz. Carol, thanks for coming to the program today. Hi, thanks for having me. I have so many things I want to ask you about because I the, the New York situation continues to really fascinate me. Um, can we start with the nursing home situation? Governor Cuomo uh, has taken to this line of defense that he's nothing but a 34th or 35th in the nation when it comes to nursing home deaths. It seems like even the Democrats are starting to catch on to this and they're starting to call him out on it. Is that right? I don't really see that many Democrats calling him out on it, and I definitely don't see most mainstream media outlets calling him out on it. I think it's an ongoing problem that nobody's paying attention to except the right. Because um, it's, a, it's a crossing a line. He crosses a big line to me. It's one thing to change the way you record the statistics to make your record look better than it is. That is one thing. But then to continually go out to the media and brag about that when you know the only reason you're 34th or 35th in nursing home deaths is because you've changed the way that you've recorded them. That is, I mean, only Andrew Cuomo, I think, would do something like this. And only Andrew Cuomo would get away with it. Um, I think if any other governor, especially any Republican governor, attempted something like this, there would be major pushback from the media. Instead, they let him continue on with his victory tour and they're just continuing to celebrate him. Um, I think the nursing home scandal is really indicative of what went wrong in New York. Uh, he just let the power go to his head when that directive came out and nursing homes pushed back on it. He threatened them. He said that they better take the patients in or else. Um, and I think so much of that gets lost in the celebration of the governor who had only 32,000 dead, you know, by far the most in the country. Um, while the media targets Republican governors who they just don't like. It's legitimately fascinating. I, I, I want to ponder the eternal question of why, honestly, why does he get this? Why does he get this break from the media? I think even other Democrat governors have been treated more harshly than him, despite him being, I mean, arguably, and I would say he is, He's handled this worse than anyone in the world. I'm including Wuhan. I'm including northern Italy. I'm including everywhere in the world. Andrew Cuomo would be at the bottom of my list on this. Well, I feel like I have a pretty good answer for that. And that's because so much of the media is New York based. So he's their governor and they were afraid. And he gave these press conferences that were sort of, um, you know, comforting in the beginning. Uh, he played that role quite well. It was just the action part that he completely failed at and nobody's holding him accountable on. Mm. Um, what is it like in New York City? You're still there, right? You're still living in New York City. What, what is what is life like these days? Um, it's really hard to say. So for one thing, extremely empty. It's hard to convey just how empty. New York in August, was always sort of um, empty, but this is something else entirely. You have uh, bare streets, and it's just, it's kind of wild. Um, and the big concern right now is, does anybody come back? You know, usually Labor Day weekend, they start making their way back home, but now we don't really know that anybody's returning. Um, the homeless situation has become just untenable. Um, they've been moving homeless people into luxury hotels, say on the Upper West Side, in residential areas. 
um, homeless, uh, active drug, drug users during the day or uh, sex felons living in your schools. I mean, it's all chaos right now, and we just don't have the leadership to deal with it. Uh, I know that we, we used to have our studios in New York, and we have a lot of friends who are still living up there. With one or two exceptions, everyone is out of town. They've all taken either gone to their parents' house at another state. They've gone to, to, you know, they've rented a house for the summer, whatever it is. Everybody wants out of there because the only reason I mean, like New York's a great city and I, I loved working there. But the reason uh, that you go there is because of all the stuff you can do. It's not because you really like the smell of rats or you really like hanging out in the subways. And so there's a bit of like a tension as to, you know, you have to deal with a lot of nonsense to get those great things. When those great things aren't there, why would anyone come back? That's exactly it. Uh, New York is amazing. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I'm a New York defender. I, you know, I love the city. It's my city. I'm not going anywhere um, yet. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize that people don't really have a great reason to return right now. And with our continuing issue of whether schools will open or won't they, and, you know, it's so in flux that we really just have no idea whether they will. I just can't see people coming back. Again, my husband and I are lifelong New Yorkers, mm-hmm. um, but the people who aren't, the people who moved here, you know, for the things that New York offers, who don't have family in the area, who don't consider it their hometown, why would they come back? Uh, Governor Cuomo offered uh, to make dinner for someone if they came, if they decided to come back. Do we know if anyone took him up on that offer? I certainly wouldn't. Um, no one off the top of my head. I think it was meant for um, the uber-rich in, you know, areas uh, that I, do, I just don't know them. Um, tit- titans of industry and such who are, who are not returning. Uh, I, I look, I'm glad he's recognizing it's a problem. I feel like Bill de Blasio, our mayor, completely doesn't realize that we have this giant issue coming up. Um, so small, you know, favors. I, I'm glad that Governor Cuomo realizes that it's an issue um, and we're going to be a giant part of our tax base and it's just not going to be the same city without those people. Yeah, as much as I, I, I've given Cuomo a hard time and he's lost a lot of these one-on-one battles with de Blasio throughout this, which has been overlooked. Uh, but this one, he is on the right side. On. I mean, I mean, it, it is ridiculous. There's no reason for these, you know, these people who are spending all this money and, and are really, you know, pumping up the tax base of New York to to come back at this point. Um, I want to get into another thing that you uh, wrote about uh, recently, which was the actual uh, steps they're taking when it comes to COVID. We all know the mask thing and we all know the sanitizing thing, but I'm seeing it even here in Texas. Some of these steps are just obviously ridiculous. I mean, like, you know, uh, at at a gym near us and, you know, full disclosure, my kids went to camp there, so it's not like I was working out, but they had treadmills there and they were actually sanitizing the front of the treadmill, like what would be in front of your feet past the little screen. It's literally no one would ever touch it. It's literally impossible. And and they're obsessively cleaning these things, even after the CDC has has told us that's not the main uh, way this is being passed along. Does it feel just like insanity to you like it does me? It absolutely does. I mean, the first thing I thought of when you said, you know, gyms, I was like, wow, your gyms are open. Ours are not open. Mm. Uh, And I don't know when they will be open. It's an ongoing problem that they just decided not to ever open gyms. so, yeah, I think so much of it is crazy. I think, like, the Dr. Fauci throwing out the first pitch and he's wearing the mask um, when he's not anywhere near anybody. But then when he sits down in the stands with his friend and his wife, he takes off the mask and he puts it back on, he takes it off, he puts it back on. That's when you're going to get COVID. 
close face-to-face interaction. You're not going to get it on a mound 60 feet from the nearest person. Um, I think so many things like that are just, they make no sense. And it's wild to me. It's wild that we can't file all the science. Um, countries all over, you know, all over the world are opening schools. Uh, many of them are doing it without masks, without social distancing, um, without sanitizing everything. And we can't do it with all of those things. So it, it's um, here in Texas, it's sort of, I, I keep making this point of this, it's kind of like the the Sweden approach or the flattening the curve approach. In the, most stuff is open. You know, you can't go to large gatherings. I think bars are still closed, but gyms are open. Mo- movie theaters are open. Most everything is open. What is actually open and closed there? I know there's a new lawsuit going on about the gyms. 1,500 gym owners in New York are now suing Cuomo to try to get their gyms reopened. Are restaurants are open at this point. Bars, what, what's the situation? Um, only outdoor restaurants and bars are open in New York City, um, and for bars, you have to eat substantial food, which is, doesn't that make it a restaurant? But mm-hmm. you know, this is no, this is no time for sanity. Um, gyms are closed, malls are closed, malls are closed. Um, so a, a large variety of things are closed, and I think a lot of those business owners are. It's less about okay, it's closed, but when? When will we reopen? Oh. New York is at an under one percent positive rate. What do we need to be at for the gyms to open? Um, they have no guidance whatsoever. A lot of these gyms um, felt they could be, they could have been open in April because they have the, the correct spacing and they, you know, can make it can make it work. Um, that's the problem is that there's been no science here and there's been no looking at what's actually safe it's all about politics um which Cuomo is you know continuing to base all the decisions on um one last one here for you carol if god forbid you know we've seen this in a few places where a, a state that was able to knock this down to almost zero has had a recurrence we're seeing it in spain now we've seen it in israel recently what happens to cuomo's big godlike defense if you have a second outbreak here, I mean, is he just so dependent on and so confident the media will cover for him that he's not even thinking of this? Yeah, um, absolutely. He is absolutely poised to argue that if we have a second outbreak, it's because we didn't shut down for long enough or hard enough or mm. uh, people didn't take his, um, you know, just words to heart and they like did whatever they wanted. Um, he's absolutely going to blame everybody but himself. Mm. Carol Markowitz, the New York Post, a couple columns, uh, how, how to bring New York uh, City's refugees back home and all the COVID safety rules are a little more than theaters. Just a couple of her recent ones. She's always great, always worth reading. Carol, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, and uh, since we've been talking about uh, Andrew Cuomo, don't forget, you can always get your Andrew Cuomo is awful uh, merchandise and Chris Cuomo is worse merchandise. It's all available at andrewcuomoisawful.com. T-shirts, mugs, masks. I know you love it. I love you. Keep sending me pictures of you wearing it. I appreciate it. Andrewcuomoisawful.com. We're back in a second. We'd love getting your reviews on iTunes. Five stars, the appropriate number of stars. This comes in for, uh, fun for the whole family. Every day, my 14-year-old asks if we can watch that stupid show, and my 10-year-old walks around singing, everyone is racist. <laughs> so basically, I'm failing as a mom, but the show is great. Whatever. Five freaking stars. Thank you so much. Stunningly, stupendous stuff. Love the podcast. And Stu, and I'm giving you 10 stars, and it's great. Whatever. Five freaking stars officially. And this one from Biden is creepy. Awesome. I love ham. 
I mean, I don't know what that means, but I don't care. Five freaking stars. Leave your reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate it. We will see you tomorrow.